Welcome to Bible study tonight. So glad you're here. Tonight we are talking about the Bible, this book, this document. I grew up with a love for the book. My grandfather was a preacher. My dad was a preacher. They had lots of Bibles on their shelves. I loved the leather-bound Bibles with the really thin pages uh, edged with gold or silver. I loved the way it looked. I loved the way it sat in their hands. But what I love more about it now is that I can build my life on it. I can stake my life on what's written in the book. I'm not just concerned with its appearance. I'm actually concerned with what it has to say. If we don't apply what the Bible says to our lives, it is literally just a book. Black ink on white pages. But when we apply it, it becomes living and active. Not changing, but living and active because the word personified is Jesus Christ himself, who is our life. He lives in us. And his life in us is our hope of glory. So we can stake our lives on this book. We can build our lives on what it says. It will guide our lives. It will instruct us. There's so much wisdom to be learned from this book. And of course, it is the story or the testimony of Jesus and his plan of redemption for humanity. So we're going to ask three questions about this book and, and attempt to answer them. The first question we're going to ask is, how did we get this book? We all have a copy of one. How did we get it? We have it. What is it? Uh, that's the next question we're going to ask. What is it? What is this book? And then the final question we're going to ask is, what do we do with it? So how did we get it? What is it, really? And what do we do with it? Have you ever received a gift at Christmas time and you didn't quite know what it was? The person had to explain it to you. You had the gift. You didn't quite know what it was. Then when you figured it out, then you had to say, okay, what am I going to do with it? I gave my brother one such gift. It was a drill bit in the shape of a cone. And when you drive that, drive that drill bit into a, a log, it splits it. My brother has a wood stove, and so it's a quick way to split kindling. You don't have to use a sharp axe or anything. You can just hold the piece of wood and drill into it, and it splits. When he opened the gift, he didn't know what he had. He just thought it was a metal cone. Then I explained it to him, and now he uses it all the time. Well, the Bible is similar. We have it, been around a long time. Long before us, this book existed. We have it. What is it? And of course, what do we do with it? So the first question, how did we get it? First, how did we get it in its current form? Well, just a little bit of history for those of us who are history buffs. How did we get this book in its current form? Because it didn't start in this current form. The original authors of this book wrote words, God's word, on stone, on clay, on pieces of leather, and eventually on 
scrolls of papyrus. Those writings were later copied to scrolls of leather and papyrus by people known as scribes. I'm sure you've heard of them. And then in the first century, so between 0 and 100 AD, those scriptures were copied to something called a codex, which is folded sheets of leather or papyrus sewn together with a cover. So a very primitive looking book, what we know as a book. Uh, skip ahead about 1,300 years to John Wycliffe. He uh, is the father of the English Bible. And in 1382, he and others would inscribe the words of Scripture on codex by hand. These books took anywhere from 10 months to two years to make. They were not only um, copies of the sacred writings by hand, but they were adorned with all kinds of beautiful illustration and things like that. It would cost someone about a year's wages to purchase one of Wycliffe's Bibles because of the time it took and the, the materials that were required. He didn't want it to be like that, but they also wanted God's word to be preserved on something permanent because they held it in such high regard. Then fast forward about 100 years or so, maybe a little more, to Gutenberg, Germany, and the invention of the uh, printing press and the Gutenberg Bible, which was the first book ever printed on the printing press in 1455. This is what made the Bible, in its current form, accessible and affordable. It wouldn't take very long to make a copy of the Bible, and because of that, it was a little more affordable. Certainly the everyman couldn't have one, but they were in every church and library, and there was often a few copies available for people to read. So that's how we got it in its current form, in its book form. It's amazing to think that we've only ever known the Word of God to be written in a book. But can you imagine if we had a bunch of stone tablets up here or pieces of clay or leather with it written on? It just it doesn't seem real. This, this book seems so real to us, but it, of course, had humble beginnings. Not because... Excuse me, not because the author uh, was humble, but because civilization was just beginning when God started speaking and language was just forming. And it's so amazing that God would condescend and use human language to reveal himself. I mean, the Bible itself tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the natural world reveals the uh, attributes of God so that men are without excuse. Uh, but God chose to use our language words to reveal himself to us so that we could understand him, uh, not just see his characteristics and recognize them, but understand them and know them, and then ultimately know him. So that's how we got it in its current form. Let's talk about how we got it in its current format. How did we get 66 books? How did we get 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New uh, how did we get it in this particular layout? 
Uh, let's talk about that for a few moments. Just a little bit more history before we dive in. So go back to about 500 to 450 BC, before Christ, and um, remember the scribe and priest, Ezra, he and Nehemiah leading the people of Judah out of captivity and back to Judah and Jerusalem. It was that Ezra who uh, collected and arranged the writings of the Hebrew Bible according to tradition and history. He kind of arranged it chronologically to give the people a history, their history, God's redemptive history. And then in that same time period, the Greeks who were advancing their civilization, uh, they were very much interested in the Hebrew religion. And so they took the Hebrew Bible that Ezra had compiled and they translated it into their language, which of course is Greek. This Greek translation of that Hebrew Bible that Ezra compiled is called the Septuagint. Have you ever heard that before? That book is called the Septuagint, uh, and it refers to the 70 men who translated it from Hebrew to Greek. Now go to uh, 200 BC, so 200 years after that. You have an anonymous scribe. We don't know who he was. But we have an anonymous scribe who took the books of the Hebrew library that Ezra had compiled, and he arranged them like a library. So the Old Testament's not laid out chronologically. I'm sure you know that. We're studying the book of Jeremiah on Sunday. And so we're reading in that book of prophecy near the end of the Old Testament, but you can go back several pages to the book of 2 Kings and, and 2 Chronicles, and you can read other things that happened during Jeremiah's time in those books. So it was this anonymous scribe that arranged the Hebrew Bible that way, like a library or a bookshelf. So he took all the books of Moses and put them together, and all the books of Jewish history, like 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, put those all together. Put the books of wisdom together, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. They're all together in a, in a group. And then finally the books of prophecy, the major prophets and the minor prophets. A hundred years after that, the New Testament writers, or sorry, not a hundred years after that, a hundred A.D., so 300 years after that, the New Testament writers completed their writings. And what's interesting about the New Testament writers is they quote from all but eight of the Old Testament books. There is direct quotes in the New Testament from just about every book of the Old Testament. So there's 39 in the Old Testament. They quote from 31 different books. So it's one continuous book. It's one continuous story. It's one complete library that we have before us today. In 200 AD, the church fathers, they accept the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible along with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the other apostolic writings. They accept that entire library of 66 books as what's called canonical. 
The word canon comes from this Latin word, which means measuring stick or standard. So the church fathers, shortly after Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, accept the eyewitness testimony of the apostles in the Gospels and the people that they informed, as well as their letters to the churches and John's prophecy, the book of Revelation, they accept that as the measuring stick, as the standard for Christianity. If you want to know who Jesus is and what he did and what we are to do in response to that, then those 27 books, along with the 39 um, Old Testament books, give us that complete picture, that measuring stick, that guide for what is true and genuine and authoritative. I didn't know this. I guess I knew it, but I was reminded of it, and I'll refresh you. Of the four Gospels, two of them are by eyewitnesses and two of them are not. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. They were apostles of Jesus. Mark and Luke were apostles of Peter and Paul, respectively. Uh, Mark is the young man in the garden that saw the betrayal of Jesus and then ran away with the disciples. Uh, it's believed that Mark was one of the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out. Remember, he sent out the 12. They did an okay job, so he called 70 and sent them out. It's likely that Mark was one of them. And then Luke was likely a Gentile, and he was one of Paul's disciples. And everything that he wrote in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, he would have learned from Paul. So we have the four Gospels, we have uh, the church history book, which is the book of Acts, and we have all the letters of the apostles, and then we have the revelation of Jesus Christ and end-time prophecy, the writings of John the Beloved, John the Revelator. So that's how we got it in its current format, and then for a moment let's talk about how we got this book in our language. Up until now, all that we've talked about that book is not yet in our language, not yet in English. If what we're about to talk about didn't happen, then we wouldn't be able to read the Bible unless we were uh, scholars of an ancient language like Hebrew or Greek. So how did we get it in our language? So we left off at 200 AD with the church fathers accepting the 66 books. Now we're going to jump ahead 100 years to 300 A.D. And a fellow by the name of Jerome, he translated the scriptures, the Septuagint, and all the New Testament writings. So just remember, the Septuagint was the Hebrew Bible translated by the Greeks into Greek. St. Jerome took the Septuagint and the New Testament writings, which were also in Greek, and he translated them into Latin, which was the language of Rome and the language of the Roman Catholic Church. Jerome translated these scriptures by commission of the Roman Catholic Church. This Bible is known as the Latin Vulgate. So you got the Septuagint, you got the Latin Vulgate. Those are two major uh, biblical texts. There's lots of other ones. But remember those two. Those are the most important, aside from the original 
manuscripts or the original scrolls and things like that. So that's 300 AD. Now we're going to take a big jump. We're going to jump a thousand years to 1382. Back to John Wycliffe. I mentioned him earlier. John Wycliffe is known as the father of the English Bible. He was the first to translate the Bible into English. He used the Latin Vulgate to do this. So the Latin Vulgate was a complete volume of Old and New Testament. And John Wycliffe used that Latin Bible to translate it into English. In the preface of his Bible translation, he openly criticized the Roman Catholic Church for a number of reasons. And the main reason being that the Roman Catholic Church was keeping the word of God from the common people by not translating it into other languages. The Roman Catholic Church was all over the world at that time. 1382? This is still pre-Protestant Reformation. So the only real organized church in the world at this time is the Catholic Church. And they're keeping the word from the people by keeping it in one language rather than translating it into all the common languages where the Catholic Church was. And of course, the Catholic Church was in England, where John Wycliffe was. And he had a lot of grievances against the Catholic Church. And that's why he translated the Bible, the Latin Vulgate, into English. Here's an interesting thing about uh, Wycliffe. Also in the preface of his translation, he wrote this. England belongs to no pope. The pope is but a man, subject to sin like us all. But Christ is the Lord of lords. And this kingdom is to be held directly and solely by Christ alone. It was these words and others that got Wycliffe's Bible banned and burned. Interesting about Wycliffe, 40 years after his death, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church at that time condemned him as a heretic. And they actually went to England and exhumed his remains and burned them for heresy to make an example of his followers. Uh, see, Wycliffe and others started uh, this criticism of the Roman Catholic Church, which led to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And so Wycliffe and others had started this grassroots movement where people were starting to criticize this big, enormous, organized uh, religion known as Roman Catholicism, which by that point was just borrowing from biblical Christianity. It was very far from it. And so they wanted to make an example of Wycliffe and others who started this criticism because there was a great uprising that was just bubbling below the surface. And so they went, exhumed his remains and burned them and said, okay, this is a... This guy was a heretic, and we burned him even though he's been gone for 40 years. But if we catch you uh, saying the things he was saying, we'll do the same to you. And of course, that never works for some reason. It's almost like the harder this Christianity is, the faster it grows. And that's, of course, what it did. Uh, we're getting now up into about 1400 A.D., where it became illegal in England to translate and read the Bible in common English. 
It was, of course, illegal to translate it, but if you somehow got a copy of it or even a corner of a page of it, it was illegal for you to even read it in English unless you had special permission from a bishop, and they never gave special permission to read it. Fast forward and move over a few countries to Germany. In 1455, you have Johann Gutenberg. He invented the printing press. And the Bible, like I said earlier, is the first book that was ever printed. The Gutenberg Bible is what it is known as. And it is an illuminated version, an illustrated version of the Latin Vulgate. Skip ahead to 1516 A.D. You have what's called the Textus Receptus. The Texas, Textus Receptus is a more accurate Latin translation of the New Testament. It was published by the priest and Greek scholar Erasmus. Erasmus translated the New Testament writings of the apostles and the other eyewitnesses and disciples of the apostles more accurately than before, more accurately than the translation that resulted in what we called the Septuagint. Like Wycliffe, Erasmus desired that everyone be able to read the Bible. He said this, Everyone must be able to read the Bible from the farmer in the field to the weaver at the loom. A few years after that, we have the um, Protestant Reformation, starting with Martin Luther and others. Martin Luther was uh, exiled, and in his exile, in Wartburg Castle, he translated the New Testament into German from that Textus Receptus that I talked about. So uh, Luther was an incredible scholar, and he used his knowledge of the ancient language of Greek to translate it, the Bible, the New Testament, into German. We're just about done. Now we're getting to William Tyndale. I'm sure you've heard of him. William Tyndale, another priest and Oxford scholar, translated the New Testament from Greek into English. This translation was banned from publication in England by the king, and so Tyndale published it in Germany, and he smuggled it back into England. Tyndale was ultimately arrested and charged for publishing this translation, and he was strangled and then burned at the stake. Um, the reason why they strangled him is because he wouldn't stop praying while the fires were burning around him. And one of the things he was praying was, Lord, open the eyes of the king. Fast forward to 1605, and we're coming into... Um, the time of King James of England. He commissioned 54 scholars to translate the entire Bible into English from the original manuscripts. So not from the Septuagint, not from the Vulgate, not from the Texas Receptus, but from the original manuscripts. And so that's what 
these scholars did. Uh, they took to translating the Bible into English from the original language. And of course, they used those other translations that I had mentioned to help guide them. But their intention was to interpret the original uh, manuscripts, the original scrolls, the original codex, and things like that, so that they could be as accurate as possible. This translation was revised for decades, and by 1769, we have the KJV, the authorized KJV, which is the most popular English translation to date. It's been around the longest, of course, so most copies of that have been sold. Maybe you have one, maybe you still use one. If you do, if you use an authorized King James, its last real revision was in 1769. The New King James is different. It has a lot more revision and updated language. And then all the other uh, translations are excellent as well. Uh, not all the paraphrases are, um, but all the translations are. You can be sure that they've gone through the same type of scrutiny and used the original documents. What's amazing is that from the time of King James until now, we've actually found older manuscripts and more complete and more fully formed manuscripts in order to corroborate the translation of these 54 scholars who translated the King James Version. You probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were manuscripts that were found in a cave, hidden and preserved, and they corroborate all of the translations into English and other languages all throughout history. So right now, as it stands, the Bible has been translated into more than 1,100 languages, and there are dozens of English translations. I'm so glad that we have the Word of God in our language so that we can know God and be known by Him. So that was a little bit of a history lesson. Of course, it was broad strokes, very surface. There's so much more we could get into, but we won't do that here. But for the sake of this Bible study, we've answered the question, how did we get it? We have this. How did we get it? Now we want to answer the question, what is it? What is this Bible? Well, let's answer two questions to answer that question. First, what does the Bible call itself? And then we're going to talk about what does Christian tradition call the Bible? What is it? Well, let's first look at what the Bible calls itself. So you've already opened to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's discover what the Bible calls itself. I should have already opened to this. There we are. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and let's start at verse 10 and go through to the end of the chapter. The heading in my Bible is, All Scripture is Breathed Out by God. So in the previous verses, Paul is telling young Pastor Timothy that in the last days there will be godlessness, that there will be uh, treachery and recklessness and swollen conceit or people that are swollen with conceit and lovers of pleasure and he goes on to talk about 
uh, those types of people. And then in verse 10, he says, You, Timothy, however, you have followed my teaching. You followed my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil impostors, or sorry, evil people and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and themselves being deceived. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood, look at this, you were acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So the first thing the Bible calls itself here is sacred writing, holy writing, writing that is set apart for God's purpose. Every word written in this book, inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, is set apart and holy for God's purpose. So that's the first thing the Bible is. It is sacred writing, holy writing, writing set apart for God's purpose. Let's look at the next verse. Paul goes on. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible calls itself the theonoustos. That's a Greek word. It means God's exhale. The scriptures, the sacred writings, are God's exhale. He breathed them out. When we speak... We expel breath from our lungs. It is, I'm sure it's possible. I mean, you can speak while you're drawing in breath, very little. But you speak by expelling air from your lungs. And Paul says that the scriptures are God's word, his spoken word. He breathed them out. It's his exhale, the theonoustos, God's exhale under his inspiration. And then the Bible goes on to say that it is profitable for teaching. It is profitable for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. The Bible says that it is our equipment for good works. It equips us to do good. So we have this thing. We have this gift. What is it? Well, first of all, it's sacred writing. It's set apart for God's purpose. It's words that are breathed out by God. It's his actual words. And those actual words have a benefit to us. They they benefit us uh, in that they teach us, they reprove us, they correct us, they train us in righteousness, and they complete us and equip us. Beyond all that, the Bible is 
the testimony of Jesus. Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 39. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from my people. You remember at the beginning of our study when I said if you don't apply these words, if you don't believe these words, they are just black ink on white paper. That's what Jesus is saying here to these folks. He's saying, the Father sent me. You've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form. And you don't have his word dwelling in you because you don't believe me. You don't believe the one whom he has sent. You're looking through a book hoping that you're going to find life in them. But you're not going to find eternal life in the words apart from me, Jesus is saying. When we have Christ in us, then these words are bread and water. These words are milk and meat. They nourish us. They feed our spirit. They guide and direct us. There's lots of amazing things in the Bible worth knowing, but apart from Jesus and his gospel, uh, they don't make any sense. They don't serve any purpose. There's no profit. A lot of people like to study the Bible, but they don't want to believe in Jesus. Now, that study is really, to me, pointless. It's futile. But when you believe in Jesus, these words, they become alive to us. They jump off the page. They speak to us. They abide in us. So the, the sacred writings, the theonoustos, the exhale of God, is the testimony of Jesus. Go back uh, another book to Luke chapter 22. Let's read a couple of verses there. Jesus again talking about the scriptures. Jesus is talking about the Hebrew Bible when he refers to the scriptures here. So he's talking about our Old Testament. And he says that even in the Old Testament, uh, there is the testimony of Jesus. He's on every page. He's in every chapter, in every verse. He's on every line. Uh, so Luke chapter 22, or sorry, not 22, 24. Luke chapter 24 Verse 27, Luke 24, 27. Actually, go back to 25. Luke 24, 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things that concerned himself. So Jesus opens to the books of Moses and the prophetic books of the Old Testament and he interprets for the listener, his disciples, all the things that concern himself. 
You don't have to just go to the New Testament to find Jesus. You can see him very clearly all throughout the Old Testament. And then skip ahead a few verses to verse 44 and 45. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Some of the last things Jesus did, some of the last words he said, uh, was to interpret the sacred writings and to show that they are his story, that they are the testimony of him so that they could then take that story, that gospel into all the world and preach the salvation or sorry, yeah, preach um, salvation, the forgiveness of sins through repentance. So what is the Bible? The Bible calls itself sacred writing. God's exhale the testimony of Jesus, and of course the Bible is the wisdom of God. It is a treasury of wisdom for us. What does Christian tradition call this book? First, and I say these words often, Christian tradition calls this book infallible, inerrant, and immutable. Infallible means without flaw. Inerrant means without mistake. And immutable means without change. This Bible flawlessly demonstrates the character of God and the salvation of God to us. This book um, unmistakably is the testimony of Jesus without error. Make no mistake about it. This is the story of Jesus. This is God's plan for redemption. And this book is immutable. It doesn't change. When this book calls itself living and active, it doesn't call itself changing. It doesn't change. When this book says that it is living and active, it is referring to the living word, Jesus, who is alive and active in the world today because he lives in our hearts and he lives through us. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The word of God that lives in me is living and active. Um, that does not mean it's changing. It's not uh, modifying over time to suit the culture. It is the canon, the measuring stick. It doesn't change. And so Christian tradition has always viewed the Bible as infallible and errant and immutable. There are a lot of people in the world today who call themselves Christians, who think they're really smart, and they like to point out things that they perceive as flaws or errors or inconsistencies or changes they are wrong the bible is without flaw without mistake and without change the bible is complete it is the whole counsel of god there is more to god than what he has revealed 
We'll live a hundred lifetimes and never understand everything that God has revealed to us. God is so much more than what he has revealed, but what he has revealed is complete. Uh, This is from the Westminster Confession. It says this concerning the scriptures. The scriptures are the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life, is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture. So everything that we need to know about God, everything that we need to give God glory, everything we need to be saved, everything we need to live a godly life and practice our faith is set down in Scripture. You can read it plainly, and what is not plainly written can be easily deduced by putting a few clear Scriptures together, particularly a doctrine like the Trinity. There's no chapter in the Bible that really explains the doctrine of the Trinity, but you put a few things together that are very clear, and you can come up with this doctrine that God is three persons, one essence, one nature, three persons. So the Bible is infallible, inerrant, immutable, complete, and then finally, the Bible is uniquely and supremely authoritative. There's no other book like it, never has been, never will be. It is the supreme authority. Uh, Let me read to you what the uh, Belgic Confession says in Article 7. So these are some ancient creeds and confessions of the church throughout history. This is what the Belgic Confession says about the unique and supreme authority of Scripture. It says this, Neither do we consider of equal value any writing of men, however holy these men may have been. We do not consider uh, of equal value their writing with those of the divine Scripture. Uh, Nor ought we to consider custom, or the great multitude, or antiquity, or succession of times and persons, or councils, or statutes, or decrees, as of equal value with the truth of God, for the truth of God is above all. For all men are of themselves liars and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts whatever does not agree with this infallible measuring stick, which the apostles have taught us, saying to try the spirits of God. Likewise, if any come to you and bring not this doctrine, do not receive them. What a beautiful confession of the supreme authority of the scriptures. I love this sentence. We don't consider custom. We don't consider a great multitude. We don't consider that because a lot of people believe it, it must be true. We don't consider antiquity or succession of times, you know, the passing of time. Things change, so the Bible changes. No, we don't consider that to be a reason to change the Bible or persons or councils or decrees or statutes. 
No, God's truth is above all. You know, I was talking to someone this week, and they asked me about uh, the Enneagram. You probably heard about that. Uh, it's really um, doctrine of demons disguised as a personality profile. Uh, but they asked me about it, and should Christians uh, read it and do it and participate in it? And I said, well, it's new age, so we would have no part of that. And this person's rebuttal was, yeah, but a lot of Christians do it. So? so? Yeah. Uh, just because a lot of people do it doesn't make it right. Just because time changes and things change, the Bible does not change. And so that leads us to our final thing. We have nine minutes and answer our last question. What do we do with it? We talked about how we got it. We talked about what it is. And now for a few moments, let's just talk about what we do with it. The first thing we do is we let it speak. We let the Word of God speak. We should never correct the Bible. We must always correct ourselves. Remember, Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed and inspired, profitable for of, many, of the many things, correction. We don't correct the Bible. We correct ourselves. Um, this happens from time to time in my home because I'm a dad of three girls. Sometimes they like to correct me. But guess what my response is? You don't get to correct me. What I say goes. Um, and even more so with God. I'm fallible. I'm human. I do make mistakes. I do need to be corrected. I don't need my daughter to do it. My wife's more than capable of it. Um, but God doesn't need to be corrected. Uh, we correct ourselves. If what you read in the Bible strokes your fur the wrong way, turn your cat around. Right? Uh, that's just the way it goes. Let the word of God speak. Don't muzzle the word of God. I, I was guilty of this for a, lot of time, for a lot of my life, Christian life. I didn't want people to know some of the things that the word said. Or I didn't want to talk about some of the things that the Bible said. I didn't really want to talk about things like hell and eternal punishment and things like that. I didn't want to talk about things like sin and, and uh, holiness and, and stuff. Because I didn't want to put people under a burden or things like that. But... That's not my place to do that. The Bible says what it says. And we need to let it speak unapologetically. We don't need to fight with this book. And we don't need to fight over this book. We just need to let this book speak. We also need to let this book interpret itself. Every text in this book has one meaning. This book doesn't have many meanings. The world likes to add meanings to it. Over the years, well-meaning Christians have tried to add meaning to it. But this book has one meaning. One interpretation and one interpretation only. Well, let me say it this way. It has one correct interpretation. A lot of people interpret it to mean many different things, but there is only one correct meaning. 
We don't get to decide what the Bible means. The Bible alone decides what it means. That's why the Bible can interpret itself. If you read something in a particular passage and you don't quite know what it means, I promise you that you can go somewhere else in the Bible and learn its application. Usually all you have to do is keep reading. And if you keep reading and you don't get it, then just turn back a few pages from that verse and read into it. Or like read from, you know, a few chapters back and you'll likely get its meaning. It's, you know, popular for us in modern times to take verses out of the Bible and just memorize them and make them say what we want it to say and mean what we want it to mean. For example, you know this one, Jeremiah 29, 11. I bet you can quote it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Who's that to? You? To Judah. You know, the nation we've been talking about for six weeks at church? That's who God said it to. Does God have plans for you? Absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. But does Jeremiah 29, 11 apply to you? Not directly. And so we have to let the Bible interpret itself. We have to let the Bible say what it says. You see, what we can know about that plan that God has for us, Jeremiah 29, 11, is what the New Testament says. That God has predestined for himself a family, that the Gentiles were always going to be brought into this plan. That's the plan God's talking about. I have plans for you, Judah. You're in exile. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will come. That's the plan. We like to take it out and go, what does God have planned for me today? I wonder what, I wonder what car I'm going to drive next week. I'm going to pray for a red one. You know, that's the prosperity gospel that takes that verse and, you know, the name it and claim it. So we need to let the Bible interpret itself. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, we can know what the Bible has to say. Colossians 3.16 tells us to let the word of God dwell richly within us. David says to hide the word of God in your heart. The Bible encourages us to live by it. You see, we're people of the book. We go by the book. No matter what others say, no matter what we think, we always go by the book. We live by it. And finally, what do we do with it? If we have to, we die by it. Like so many who suffered and died to bring us this Bible in our own language. Like the one who suffered and died to save us. The story that is revealed in this Bible. We too must be willing to stake our lives on the book and if necessary, give our lives for the book.